Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. It's the 14th century. The Western world was entering a new historic era. There is a new, renewed interest in classical literature, art, and philosophy. We now can see how this period of time behaved as a bridge between the Middle Ages and modern-day civilization. This epoch is known as the Renaissance. Its name actually means rebirth. And in particular, this time was a rebirth of the Greco-Roman antiquities and ideals, which lasted this, this time of, of, of ancient Greece, antiquities, and even, even the Roman uh, Empire lasted for about a thousand years from, one would argue, especially classical Greek art, 500 B.C. to about 500 A.D., at first glance, especially from an art lens, the Renaissance provides for us what appears to be a strong promotion of Christian themes and morals. Everywhere you look, it seems as if what is being promoted and what is being celebrated would be Christian ideals and doctrines. But upon further investigation, it is not difficult to discover that the Renaissance was less concerned with Christian thought as it was the expression of knowledge, both spiritual and physical, education, increasing literacy, and other scholarly goals. Without a doubt, the, the top layer, if you will, the the, the crust, the, the, this, this top layer of the Renaissance gave the illusion of spiritual themes. But the underlying foundation was steeped in the pursuit and celebration of naturalism. In other words, the Renaissance was man's attempt. Man's attempt to converse and contemplate the weightier topics of the day, but not from God's vantage point, rather from a human lens. So, so what am I saying? Simply put, the drive of the Renaissance was humanism. The drive of the, hum of, of the Renaissance was humanism, but the way in which it was conveyed the way that it was sold, the way that it was displayed and packaged was through the blending of the spiritual with the physical. There was a blending of the two. Both spiritual and physical were blended into one. And many times this conflation, or, or better yet, this syncretism, which is a blending of spiritual ideologies or schools of thought. This syncretism took place with little regard 
for a proper hermeneutic or theology. In this, the spiritual and even mystical conversations of the day were not measured all of the many conversations and the hot topics and the intellectual debates, they were not being measured by their doctrinal purity or their biblical accuracy, but rather all of these conversations, both spiritual and otherwise, were being measured through the lens of superstitious man-made dogma and or naturalistic humanistic logic. And while one could argue that there was more availability to Christian imagery, that there was more availability to Christian thought than the many generations and centuries that preceded it, due to the limited access to Scripture and the diminishing view of Scripture, supposed Christianity became defined and communicated to its adherents, not by the Word of God, but rather by the intellectual makers and writers of the day. Did you guys catch that? The way in which Christianity supposedly was being given and communicated was not by the foundation of Scripture, but rather by the intellectual makers and writers of that time. Thus, all who thought they were serving the Lord and pronouncing His ways, everyone who, who was sincere in their pursuits and, and sincere in, in even the pronouncing of His ways, were in reality, during this time, being molded by the confluence of a non-biblical religion and the ever-changing landscape of their own humanistic tendencies. Like waves of the ocean, they rise and fall with the popular opinions of man, proclaiming what would be a false gospel while being none the wiser and most likely still lost in their sins. Unfortunately, the time of Renaissance reminds me of Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Where Christ says, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many uh, wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Such troubling words. And yet words that we must hear even right now. Could it be that as we even gather tonight, that the spirit of the Renaissance has infiltrated the hearts of some of us who are here even in this room? There is talk of rebirth everywhere. There is talk of rebirth all around. You hear notions of being spiritually born again. You even attest to being a spiritually attuned person. 
You even read your Bible. You have a faith that is all your own. You are sincere, pious, devoted. You are honest in your pursuit. And yet, could it be that while all those things are true, that you are even right now altogether void of truly knowing the Lord through the person of Jesus Christ? If history is our teacher, if history is our teacher, what we find is that the commingling that was present in the Renaissance, this mixture, this blending, this syncretism, this commingling that was so ever present in the Renaissance, maybe it is even present in you. Maybe this spirit of commingling, of spirit and flesh, of old man and new man, of the old outfit that we were called to put off and the new, new outfit that we were called to put on. Maybe you put on the new man, but you never put off the old. This commingling that was present in the Renaissance, that this mixture of truth with other axioms and philosophies, that this confusion of the Renaissance would lead us to the culturally and emotionally charged time of the Baroque. Anyone who's studied Western Civ or, or maybe you've taken an art history class and, and you've heard some of these words, the Renaissance, right? The 14th century to about the 16th century, and then you hear of, of the Baroque. And we can keep moving on, and you hear about these things, whether, it, whether it's in, in literacy or whether it's in uh, arts or, or, or even economics of, of sorts. Could it be that the commingling that was present in the Renaissance, that this confusion that was present during this time of rebirth, that that would be what would lead us into the culturally and emotionally charged time of the Baroque? Now, what we know about the Baroque is that it was a dynamic time. It was a didactic time. It was, it was a... It was a uh, uh, a powerful time in, 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 in the ways in which what it portrayed. Very captivating. The Baroque was, was charismatic. There were charismatic individuals. They were aggressive. They were bold, yet biblically bankrupt. So the commingling of the Renaissance, this spirit and flesh mixed together, leads us to a place of emotional and, 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 and charismatic and dynamic leaders and individuals. And yet the problem is, though, even though they may be dynamic and they may be charismatic and they may be, be extreme and loud, they are still biblically bankrupt. And from the busyness of the Baroque, we're brought to the Rococo. And unfortunately, due to the Baroque's loud yet vacuous nature, the pseudo-spiritual would soon be replaced with hedonism and sensuality. The spiritual world was nothing more than a superstitious crutch. Can you guys see the pattern that I'm giving to you right now? 
Can you see the pattern that, that's, that is simply human history? A, a period of, of three to four hundred years of human history. Can you see how the epics of human history are acting as a warning for us even tonight? That the commingling of truth over time will lead to our confusion where we will no longer recognize the true purpose of God in our lives. And because of this error, the next generation, while they may still hold to some form of godliness, they may still, there may still be lots of activity that they are altogether biblically bankrupt. The mission is now lost. It's completely misunderstood. And often it is replaced with what we believe to be right. There is no biblical authority anymore. The commingling led to the confusion, and the confusion it leads to some type of charismatic activity, but it's biblically bankrupt. And so now, because, because there is no final authority, what I preach is whatever I think I should. Whatever we think is right in our own eyes. And finally then, due to the aimless and superstitious nature of our faith, the next generation that, that follows us ends up rejecting God altogether. They see through it all. It's a facade. Religion is a game. It's a joke. This generation then makes up their own mission, fashioned after their own likeness. The spiritual is replaced with the sensual, and there is no other reasonable pathway. I hope you can see this tonight. I hope you can see as we walk through human history that, that a movement of God, and when I look in this room, I see that that is the potential that is before us. I hope you can see that a movement of God doesn't become a monument overnight. A movement of God does not become a monument overnight. And churches don't die in a day. And faith is not lost in a moment. No, on the contrary, a movement of God becomes a monument when it has become commingled with the commandments of men. Matthew 15, 8 through 9. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. In this, the church falls for the old switcheroo. And unbeknownst to many of us, we've invited a magician in our midst. And through his careful sleight of hand, the magician steals our worship. Yet in its place, this illusionist, who once again is in our midst, brings about not a wholesale rejection of truth. The illusionist is not a wholesale rejection of truth, but a blending. It's a blending of tradition and good intentions with truth. It's not a wholesale replacement. Everyone would notice that. 
Just a subtle mixture. Which leads to the implementation of what? A dual authority. Where the word of God is no longer the absolute of our lives. Secondly, we see that the church, it doesn't die in a day. Churches don't die in a day. They slowly die when they become commingled with the causes of men. You see, a movement becomes a monument when the church becomes commingled with the commandments of men. And churches, they don't die in a day, but they slowly die when we become commingled with the causes of men. With all of the many causes that the world says the church should be a part of. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 12, the Apostle Paul says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have uh, received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? Do we seek to please men? Is that the mission? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Wow. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Please know that this error is happening even as we speak, and yes, even in our very churches. The causes of men are attempting to be commingled with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because many of us are hoping to, to find leverage in our communities, we are willing to give up certain things. And oh, by the way, you have just now chased after a false gospel. Have you ever wondered why the world is so cool with your community-based causes? We finally found a way to partner with our neighborhoods and our communities, and it's so exciting. And listen, I believe that God can use those things, and I mean that sincerely. But have you ever wondered how, how there's so much spiritual attack when you bring up the name of Christ, but yet when you find those opportunities by which you can partner with the world, and the true gospel is the one thing that's left out of your mission, that the world is cool with you? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered why the world, which biblically speaking is defined as the enemy of God, have you ever wondered why the world wants to celebrate with you when the church places its focus on sustainability and even things like racial recon uh, reconciliation? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You're not supposed to say things like that, are you? It's another gospel. It's another gospel. But when it comes to the declaration of the gospel, the only name by which all names and all people can be found 
to have a relationship with God, the name of Jesus Christ, when that name is mentioned, that when Jesus Christ is mentioned, who is the only one and the only way by which we can be reconciled to God, that the world will throw you out like a piece of garbage. They will throw you out like a piece of trash the moment you stake your claim on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will turn on you in a heartbeat. You see, it is the gospel of Christ which brings about the power of God unto salvation. And listen, in case I am misunderstood, I'm not saying that the church shouldn't participate in in those other initiatives. But at some point, those other opportunities must become bridges by which the gospel can be carried into new communities. At some point, we've got to get to the place where all of these initiatives and these community opportunities and these, 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 these fishing holes that we, that we like to call them, at some point, that opportunity must turn into a divine appointment where the gospel of Jesus Christ is being preached in that setting. Simply put, any other cause outside of the gospel of Christ can only be a cursed cause. If it does not bring with it the cross, there is no life in those other causes. No matter how grandiose the virtue signaling may be. Luke 6, 46. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? God's in heaven going, bro, this doesn't make sense. You're calling me master, master. And listen, you, you don't do what I say. So, so maybe we got to find another word. Buddy. Friend. Companion. I don't know what it is, but, but if you're going to call me Lord, Lord, and you're not going to keep my commandments, I think we have to go back and, and define that word once again. Why, it's such a simple, simple phrase. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and yet you you don't do what I'm telling you to do? Such a simple question, yet incredibly profound. There are many who claim to know the Lord. They claim to have placed their faith in God. They would even say they are serving the Lord. And yet their service, maybe even right now, your service to God Almighty is submitted to another cause that is not the cause of Christ. Your service is submitted to some social gospel that is present even right now and is hot and, 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 and sexy and everybody thinks it's amazing and the world loves it and the church loves it. And what you find is that you are no longer submitted to the cause according to the construct by which God created, but you are submitted to the construct that the world created and not the word of God. It is time we as the church find our cause in Scripture. That we find our doctrines in Scripture. 
that we find that the Word of God truly, although we say it many times, is truly the final authority of my life. That when I'm walking out of my house every day, I am considering, God, what did your Word say for me today? I need to live according to it. You see, we love saying all these things. We love saying that the Word of God is our final authority. Principle number three. We love saying this stuff. But we're lying. We're lying most of the time. It's just some flippant thing that we say because you are being programmed and I'm being programmed nine times out of ten by this social media feed or whatever and the world is feeding you and feeding you and feeding you. Your final authority is not the word of God. Your final authority is the world and the causes of the world. In this, we must constantly ask ourselves whether or not the cause of the church has remained the cause of Christ, or have we become fashioned after the causes of men? And then number three, we must understand that faith is not lost in a moment. Rather, faith is polluted when it is commingled with the criticality of man. You see, a movement becomes a monument when we become commingled with the commandments of men. A church slowly dies when it is commingled with the causes of men. And our faith is polluted when it is commingled with the criticality of man. We saw this in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, 1. Now the spirit was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had, had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Did God really say that? Can you, can you really trust God's word? And what happens in this moment is that doubt begins to set in in our lives and we begin to question the very one thing that brought salvation to us. What was true in the garden is still true today. If the world can move you, if the world can move you from saying, thus saith the Lord, to yea, hath God said, the world has won. James 1, 5, 8, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. It sounds like an individual who is commingled with the world. It's not a wholesale rejection of God. It's just that we haven't made the decision to cross Jordan. It's not that, that, that I, I love church. I love singing the praises of God. I actually love the word of God. I find that, it, that in it are the, the words of life. I, I, it's not that I'm rejecting God, but I also find it, the world's interesting too. And there's some philosophies and there's some things that I find truly compelling from the world as well. 
The Word of God says that this person who has commingled their faith has become double-minded. That we have become double-minded in our ways. You see, once we are moved to this place of uncertainty as it relates to the words of God, you won't be able to accomplish anything for the purposes of God. Once you are moved to a place where you no longer are sure that you can completely trust the word of God, and in the moment by which when you look at that book and, and there's just a, a part of you that says, I just, I don't know. At that very moment where the word of God is no longer the final authority of your life, at that very moment, at that place of, of uncertainty, as it relates to the words of God, you have now put yourself in a position to where you cannot accomplish anything for the purposes of God. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Where once you had faith, now there is only doubt. And we know that doubt cripples us while faith brings about healing and power. Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 24 this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. It's time that we stop walking like the world. It's time that we stop looking like the world. It's time that we start, start to look like a peculiar people. Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That ye put off, that ye put off, that we would put off the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt, that we would no longer walk in this commingled state, that we would finally, at one point, Christian, make the choice to put off the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Today, tonight, this evening, I am convinced that one of the biggest threats for the church is not a wholesale rejection of truth. It is not blatant apostasy, although that is present. Rather, one of the biggest threats of the church today is a commingled commission. It is that the church is full today of individuals with competing agendas who have not counted the cost to live separately unto the Lord. You are still straddling the fence even as we speak. Revelation 3, 14 through 20 it speaks to the spirit of this age, and this was a passage that we looked at even last year. And we went into detail unpacking the dangers and the missteps of this church age by which we identify. 
And the word of God says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art, what? Lukewarm. Because, because you're lukewarm, you just can't make a choice, can you? It's just so hard. Life's just really difficult. It's just difficult for me to make a choice. What should I get on the menu? There's 50 things. I just can't decide. It's so hard. I, we joke, but is that not what brings about anxiety in most of you? It's not that life's hard. It's just that there's so much. It's just that there's, there's so much out there. And what if I make a mistake? And I just don't know. And so, I'm, I, you know what? I got an idea. I won't do anything. God says, listen. Just do something. Like God's in heaven going like, come, come on, guys, this game, really boring. Someone's got a score. Satan, go ahead. <laughs> like, I mean, he's just, he's just like, you got to do something. I, I wish you were just cold. Because then at least we go, ooh, wow, you guys are off. But no, we're just kind of like, I don't know, it's just kind of good. Okay, I don't know. And we, and we meander through our Christianity. And we meander through our churches. And we meander through our college ministries. And we meander through our lives. And we meander through our careers. And we meander through our relationships. And we meander through our responsibilities. And we're like a wet noodle. That's us. That's the American church. It's just that's who we are. Make a decision. You're lukewarm. He says, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. You're not a, it's not a good taste. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. I just want to spend time with someone who wants to spend time with me. God has saved us to be a called-out assembly. Ecclesia, it's the church. That's what the church means. God has called us to be a called-out assembly, which means if we are to accomplish his purposes for our lives, there has to be a separation from the world, not an integration to be accepted in it. If 
we are going to accomplish the purposes of God in our lives, if we are going to accomplish the Great Commission and we are going to stand before God at the judgment seat of Christ, the only way we are going to accomplish that is if we put off the old man and we put on the new man and we start to realize that this thing by which God called the church really does mean what he, thinks, what, what he says it means. That he desires for us to be a called out assembly. That we would be a peculiar people separated unto good works. And guys, listen, listen, and I mean this sincerely. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. Being a believer can be difficult. You can feel alone. You can feel so desperate to fit in that you end up losing all of your peculiarity. So desperately you want to fit in with your coworkers. So desperately you want to fit in with, with, your, with, your, with your classmates. So desperately you want to fit in with your family. And so, listen, I'm not going to reject God. I'm just going to make a little concession. Just a little. And I'm still going to go to church, and they, and they still know I'm going to go to church, and I'm still going to give, and I'm still going to read my Bible, and I'm, I'm still going to do the Bible study that I've always been a part of. I love all those things, but, but listen, I, I just got to make a small concession because I, I feel alone. You never feel like you can be cool enough to be respected Listen, guys, that is, that is quite literally the opposite of what God called you to. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14 through 17. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. God has called you out of this world. So come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Come out, Christian. The commingled Christian is just like Solomon. Just like Solomon. We've been given all wisdom. Don't you know that? Solomon was the wisest man ever to, ever, ever to walk the earth. Guys, we have the mind of Christ. We have access to the mind of Christ. We have been given all wisdom. Yet instead of being single in our pursuit of the Lord, we have become commingled with the affairs of this life. Even though we know that the world is lost, even though we know we left the world, we look to the world for answers. The word of God says that Solomon, he had many wives of the nations that surrounded him. Many wives. 1 Corinthians 11.4 For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives, the wisest man ever to live, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of David, 
his father. What happened? What happened to Solomon? He was commingled. He was commingled. And the commission that God gave to Solomon, that he desired that, 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 that God would use a king in Israel by which the nations of the world would be blessed, the covenant that was given to Abraham in Genesis 12, God was at this point using that in, in Solomon's life. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of Israel accomplishing the purposes of God. And guess what? What stopped the work? Was it a wholesale rejection of God? No, it was a commingling. It was a commingling. It was that Solomon was not willing to be separate to the Lord. And I look at this room right now, and I look at the potential, and I look at the opportunity, and you know what's holding you back? It's that you're commingled. You're still tied to the world. You're Pergamos. You're still trapped in that place where you're not willing to give it up. It's just still too good. The co-mingled Christian is just like the nation of Israel in the book of Numbers. In Numbers 22 through 24, Balak, king of Moab, asks Balaam, this seer. Balaam is this very interesting individual in the Bible. And if you, leave, if you read Numbers 22 through 24, kind of sounds like a good dude. <laughs> Balak says, listen, will you curse Israel? We got, this, we got this new country coming on, and I'd really like you to curse them. Balaam, Balaam doesn't really know who Israel is, is but, but he's a seer, and he goes to God. He says, okay, God, uh, I got this, this group of people, Israel. You know who they are? He's like, God's like, no dice. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Not going to happen. You can't curse them. And so Balak is, is asking Balaam to curse Israel, and through God's counsel, Balaam refuses. End of story. Not really. Not really. Balaam says this. He sounds so, so pious. How can I curse whom God blesses? Sorry, Balak. Man, Balak is, is upset. I could have promoted you to high honor. Balaam sounds very pious. But then when all was said and done, after this, this escapade of Numbers 22 through 24... The longest narrative in the book of Numbers. After this whole thing goes on, Balaam ponies up to Balak and says, listen, 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 Balak. I appreciate all of your generosity. I can't curse Israel. God won't let me. But if you want to see them fall, if you want to see Israel fall, have their sons marry the daughters of Midian. If you truly want to, I, I can't curse them. God won't let me. But if you want to see them fall, have the sons of Israel marry the daughters of Midian. You see, Balaam knew, which is why he is a picture of the false prophet in the Bible. He's a picture of Antichrist, right? Balaam knew, the devil knows, that the fastest way to destroy the work of God is not for you and I to completely reject it. It's not that you would all of a sudden stop going to church. 
Dun, dun. What do we do now? The, 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 the greatest attack of the devil is not for you to say, I'm done. If anything, that would help the rest of the church know exactly where you are. The greatest threat is not for you and I to completely reject it. If I see that you completely reject your faith, in my Bible study, you know what I'm doing? Guys, pray for so-and-so because they've fallen off. Pray for them. You guys want to know the, the, the most devious way by which we are going to see the work of God destroyed in our lives? It's not a complete rejection, but rather a corruption. It's that, that it's corrupted. It's that the churches are infiltrated with commandments and causes and criticality that we cannot find in the scriptures. It's where truth is mixed with error. You see, in both of these examples, we find that the destruction of Israel and Solomon was that there was no consecration found. There was no consecration found. There was no separation. God had called them to be a holy priesthood. God had called them to be a peculiar people, to put off before they put on. And yet what we find is that it was their desire to integrate with what was popular or socially acceptable, that this is what robbed them of truly being used of God. What robbed the church, what robbed Israel, what robbed Solomon, what, what will rob us is not a wholesale rejection of the gospel. It's a corruption of it. It's a commingling of causes. It's an integration. Israel wanted kinship with the lost. Solomon wanted kinship with the lost. You see, and here's the thing, it wasn't that Israel struggled with sin, because isn't that what we think sometimes? I just struggle with sin so much, and I know that because I haven't reached this, this epic place of spiritual maturity, that that's why God can't use me, because I'm, I'm a sinner. Who isn't? And, and when you got saved, it all of a sudden you, became, you become like righteous in and of yourself, you were and you are a sinner, but now you're a sinner saved by grace, which then makes you a saint. But that, that sainthood is not because of all the good works that you've done, and now we've knighted you. You go, yeah, amen, I got it. I don't know if you heard me. The issue with Israel, and I'm not making light of sin. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Amen. Okay, we got that. I'm so glad you guys know that. But here's my thing. I, I want you guys to hear me. It wasn't that Israel was struggling with their sin. It wasn't that Solomon was struggling in his sin. Listen, we all struggle with sin every day. I struggle with sin every day. I have this flesh and until it's glorified, it is going to remain corrupted until the day I die. 
And so it's not that, well, he just struggles with sin. Who doesn't? The issue is not that you struggle with sin. The issue is not that, that I got all these just pet issues. The issue is that Israel and Solomon had become married to the world. That was the issue. The issue is not, well, you know, shucks, I just, I just know that if I could get rid of this pet sin. And listen, you should. And we should work to, to live holy lives set before the Lord. He is worthy of it. He is worthy of it. But we got to get past this narrative that is focused on your self-righteousness. The issue had little to do with their good works or their bad works. The issue was that they had become married to the world. They were married to the world. So what specifically leads to a commingled commission? What, 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 what is it? Like I've, I've talked about this, and, 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 and we've spoken at it in a, in a philosophical, large, overarching manner. But, but what specifically leads to a commingled commission? We know it's a concern. I pray that, that as we've been speaking, as we've been going through these, these texts, that you have been convinced, oh God, make, make me an individual that is not commingled with the world. I don't want to be commingled. What exactly are we talking about? As we close, I want us to look at just a few of the deadly mistakes that are present today. What are, what are the deadly mistakes? What are the things that you and I, that we need to look out for? Number one, the pursuit of the physical. You want to know a way where you can screw it up in a heartbeat? It's probably the most obvious Guys, listen, there is no other way, not no other way, no easier way, I should say, to miss the mark than to be unequally yoked with a lost person. And some of you guys, even right now, are tempted to pursue that very relationship by which God and, and by which I have even read tonight, you are not intended to be in that place. Some of you, even right now, are, are thinking, but maybe I could make it work. I know, I, know it, I know it doesn't work for anyone else, and I've seen how awful it is, but, but, but maybe God could use it. The pursuit of the physical is, is probably the most obvious, and, and it's the easiest way by which we can miss the mark. When you and I are unequally yoked with a lost person, when we choose to enter into a relationship with the lost world, there's no easier way to be completely sidelined for the rest of your life. I am old enough right now to be some of your dads. Honestly, probably most of you. <laughs> I, I Really. I could be your dad. I could be, I could be your parent right now. And I know many people, I know Brandon knows many people who wed themselves to an individual and they have been sidelined now for 20 years. Not just one. So many. So many. 
The easiest way for you to miss the mark is to be unequally yoked with a lost person. So what's the solution? We've got to be mission-focused. We've got to be mission-focused. You want to look for someone. Listen, guys, at Living Faith, we, we just finished a relationship series. And, and one of the things that I was, I was teaching on throughout this time is that when you are looking for a spouse, and, and, and I don't know how we miss it because in Genesis 2 it says it so cleanly and so, so clearly that Adam needed a what? A helpmeet for the what? The work. And, and, and listen, I, I just don't think we understand it, that God gave us marriage for the work. Marriage is for the work. You need, so we need to be mission-focused. I need to have my mind on the mission of God, which means as I am in the work of God, when the work of God continues to grow and I realize I need help. I need help to accomplish this mission. I need to look for a partner. I need to look for someone who would be willing to walk alongside me, to work with me. Now that's exciting. But see, so often the way we look at marriage and the way that we look at relationships is we, we have so many of these things. It's like, you know what, well, we, we like the same music. Get, <laughs> okay. Hate to break it to you, but that's not going to help you much. <laughs> Like, that's not going to be like, you know, I, I just thought with all of our similarities that we wouldn't fight so much. I mean, after all, we both like this band. Like, what? Like, but listen, you, okay, I was the Kaya pastor for I don't know how many years, and I can't tell you how many times someone says, man, they're like so cool and hot and all these things. And, and you know, and we like, and, and we, we like the same music. And, and I'm going, mm, no, no. Like, that is not what you want. And yet we look, we, we, we're in that superficial place. You want someone, when you are looking at them, that you're thinking, I could partner with this person for life. Let's go. Let's go. I'm about the work. I know they're about the work. And I need help in the work. Right? And they're going to go with you. They're going to be with you doing it. You need someone who is mission-focused. you got to have someone who's yoked to the same work. A lost person can't do that. And even a weak believer can't do that. Look for a co-laborer. The second day, the pursuit of happiness and positivity. Guys, if there is one way in which the church has become commingled outside of just the fact that, that the church will marry whoever walks in that day. Oh, you're alive. Right? The, the church is completely, completely commingled with the lost world. The next thing is that the church has also become commingled in the pursuit of happiness and positivity. This pursuit is more dangerous than you think. In the lost world, the focus of most people is just to be happy. Have you guys ever asked that to a question, what do you want? Do you know how often someone, the very first thing they say, I just want to be happy. And, and, and we, we think, oh, that's, that's cute. No, like they, they mean it. And, if, and, and if, if we ask the question in this room, if you were being honest and not, I want to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. 
if, if, if you were to be honest, and if like I had a lie detector test on you, many of you guys would say, I just want to be happy. I'm just being honest. This pursuit is more dangerous than you think. In the lost world, the focus of most people is just to be happy, and it's usually through prescription medication. And what is the goal in in pursuing happiness? What's the goal? I don't want to suffer. The goal is to avoid all suffering. Do you guys see how that is a commingling of the world? Can you see how the world is telling you that you don't have to suffer? And in doing so, can you see how it is trying to keep you from seeing your desperate need for God in your life. Don't you know that the suffering, the sadness, the sorrow, the pain, the brokenness, the relationships that aren't going like you thought they would go, the difficulties at home, the hardship at work, the pains, the moments where you feel insecure and anxious, don't you know that God wants to be in all of those with you so that you can be drawn on your knees to him? It is through the sorrow. It is through the sadness. It is through the hurt. It is through the pain by which we recognize our desperate need for God and the world is saying, oh, hold on, hold on. No, 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 no. Don't go there. Take another pill. Just go numb. Let's block it. we got no solutions, but we're going to block them all. Somewhere along the way, many would argue in the 1970s, and I'm not, I'm not throwing that out, that the church fell into this trap as well. In the 1970s is where you, you begin to see the rise of the megachurch, something that really didn't really exist. You had huge churches like... Charles Spurgeon's church, things like that. But the, there was this rise of the megachurch that, that started to infiltrate, especially American Christianity in the 70s. And, and uh, it's a very interesting uh, study if you look at how it developed and all these things. But what happened is, is that the church sought ways as it was experiencing this rapid growth to entertain its members. You see, the, the goal became having people have positive experiences. When people come to your church, they need to have a positive experience. We need to entertain the people who come. And one of the easiest ways to entertain is we entertain their children, and then mom and dad will come because mom and dad will do this. And they can fund the continuation of your work. And so the goal is that we would entertain our members and give them positive experiences over persecution. When you read the Bible, the only thing that you can see for the New Testament church is that it was persecuted by the world. That's all you can see. On almost every page of the New Testament, is that the New Testament is a peculiar people and it is in a war against the three enemies, the flesh, the world, and the devil. And yet in some way we've become commingled to now 
The goal is not for us to lay down our lives for the cause of Christ. The goal is now to offer a positive experience for those who come in. Instead of seeing the spiritual significance of suffering, the church has sought ways to safely shelter its congregants. Even now we have Christian radio stations whose whole mantra is that they are positive and encouraging. And what you will find is that this commingling that seemed so bizarre, that phrase that seemed so bizarre in the 1970s with the New Age positivity movement which came into the church, that phrase where in the 1970s churches would have been like, what the heck, bro? Like, positive and encouraging. That's not the church. Now, after a generation, hmm, after a generation has heard this phrase, something that was so bizarre has become fully integrated 40 years later and is now considered an accepted Christian experience. Like it's a doctrine. <laughs> to be clear, this pursuit of positivity and one would argue the absolution of suffering is not found in Scripture. It is not biblical. Rather, it is steeped in New Age mysticism and Eastern religions, namely Hinduism and Buddhism. Now, when suffering does come into our lives, whenever anything happens to where I suffer, it must be bad. If I'm suffering, it must be wrong and rejected at all costs. This isn't good. This isn't right. And so whenever anything goes wrong in my life, well, God must not be in that. You've been bamboozled. You've been tricked. Could it be that God is saying, this is where my fellowship is? I'm in the suffering. I'm in the fire. I'm with you. And yet whenever suffering comes, we're like, nope, this must not be right because we have been tricked. We've been tricked. That whenever hardship or pain or suffering or sadness comes into our lives, especially this generation, this must be bad. This must be wrong. And God is saying, I'm using this in your life so that you realize that you need me. That yes, it is bad and it is wrong and I need you to repent or it is bad and it is wrong and I want you to feel it because that person is hurting and they need you to hurt. They're weeping and they need you to weep. They're lost and they need to, for you to remember when you were lost and we need to enter into those seasons of pain and hurt not to be some melodramatic and melancholy individuals. Oh, life's so hard. But that we would be a people that realize God is in those moments. This commingling of positivity and this pursuit of happiness is a drug that will keep you from reaching the individuals and keep you from entering in to the fellowship that God has always intended for you. What's the solution? What was the solution earlier for, for the pursuit of the physical? Let's be mission-focused. We need to be about the work. Let's find a partner in the work. You know what the solution is for, for this, this pursuit of positivity? 
read your Bible. Read your Bible. You're like, well, what should I read? Anything. <laughs> Any part of the Bible, because what you'll find is in the Bible, God's servants suffered. God's servants gave their lives. And man, when we hear that, we're like, I get it in this romantic way. Maybe someday. How about every day? What's the solution? What's the solution to this positivity movement that's all around us, that's commingling the church today? Read your Bible. Suffering and sadness and sorrow, they all lead us to better understanding our Savior. It brings us to our desperate dependence on the Lord. And it allows us to have fellowship with Him. Number three. The pursuit of Gnosticism. What's another deadly mixture? The pursuit of Gnosticism. Today the church is no longer satisfied with the plain reading of God's word alone. People who do read the Bible use the Bible like a Ouija board. Trying to uncover mysteries and conspiracy theories rather than spending time with their creator. The scriptures now are just one part of the overall experience. For the Gnostics, they always believe that there is something deeper than the normal Christian life, a deeper experience, a deeper knowledge, something hidden. There has to be a secret pathway, a hidden passage to real spirituality. And yet Colossians 2 verses 8 through 10 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. You are complete in him. One of these Gnostic practices is centering prayer. Have you guys heard of centering prayer? If I say yes, then he'll know that maybe I have some knowledge of it. Centering prayer is, is similar to the spiritual side of yoga, where an individual seeks to be one with the universe. Centering prayer is a practice where the believer empties their minds and bodies so that they can receive the gift of God's presence. Many people who have practiced occult practices will say that centering prayer is actually very akin to their rituals as well, where they will empty their mind, remain motionless, and open themselves to receive whatever will come in. And in both practices, the person will at times repeat a sacred word or phrase over and over again, they will repeat it. The problem with a, a, a practice like this, a problem with this Gnostic tendency, this secret way to get more of God outside the Bible, outside of proper prayer and the local church, the problem is that you can't find this practice in the Bible, nor is prayer defined in this manner in the Bible at all but you can see how it leads to demonic oppression. God desires for his children to speak to him through his son Jesus as we meditate on the word of God. 
How about the energy healing practice of tapping prayer? With tapping prayer, the body holds trauma through its energy fields. Guys, listen, so many of us, and I believe your generation especially, speaks of energy in such a normal way. This generation is more spiritual than any of the generations that preceded it. We're more willing to talk of, of, of these spiritual constructs. With tapping prayer, there is this sense where you are, are both in the traumatic moment, which happened in the past, and the tapping is some type of activity that allows you to be present, which the present then begins to overrule and say and suggest that no longer is that thing uh, in control of you. Now you have victory. And so through these energy fields, usually the participant will tap on various meridians, energy pathways of the body. Through this tapping experience, renewed balance, does this sound like Christianity? This balance is brought back to your body. In other beliefs, we would liken this to our chakra or our chi. Take the Enneagram craze a few years back, for instance. Uh-oh. What's the big deal? Well, according to the Gospel Coalition, the earliest mention of this word is credited to the Russian occultist P.D. Auspensky, who gives credit to his teacher, Greek-American occultist, George uh, L. Uh, Gurdjieff. Later on, uh, who considered the Enneagram a symbol of the cosmos? Sounds like astrology. Later on, another occultist, Oscar Echozo, attached it to personalities. And then Claudio Naranjo, another occultist. There's a lot of occultists who really like the Enneagram. No big deal. He also was the first to connect the nine points of the Enneagram to personalities. In 1970, Naranjo spread the Enneagram to Catholic mystic communities. Wow. So what started with the occult in the 1970s then was then found in Catholic mystic communities, and that was 1970, and then, I don't know, 1998, it starts to become popularized, and then that takes time to where it's then mainstream, and now, man, go for it. Some suggest the Enneagram began with the Kabbalists, which was a Jewish mystic group, Sufi mystics, Pythagoreans, or Chaldeans. Sounds good to me. Good groups. Why not? I love Gnostic-based numerology. The Word of God tells us to avoid such Gnostic pursuits. Like, what's this all about? Why are you dealing with this? I'm talking about a commingling, and we're just like, la-di-da, it's cool, what a big deal, nothing. Do you guys follow where I'm going with this? It doesn't hurt. What does it hurt? What does it hurt? And what happens is we keep saying, what does it hurt? What does it hurt? Well, then you're like Wiley Coyote, and you're, you've been off the cliff. <laughs> you guys don't even know who that is. <laughs> you've been off the cliff for like five seconds, and all of a sudden, huh, I'm not standing on anything. And that's when you're falling. None of you guys understood what that joke was. Okay, okay. Liars. Okay, so what's the solution? What's the solution? 
Okay, we already talked about our first solution was what? We have to be mission-focused. The second solution, we got to start reading our Bibles. The, the third solution, we must stay focused on evangelism and discipleship. Get rid of this nonsense. All of these things that aren't submitted to the Word of God. Get rid of these things that are occupying your time, that, that, that are outside the Scriptures, that are outside the, the plenary teaching of God's Word, that are outside the mission that God gave us. God gave you everything you need. Amen? Everything you need to accomplish the Great Commission. And lastly, the pursuit of paganism and divination. You say, okay, Dan, come on now. Like, who's doing that? Who's pursuing paganism and divination? Oh, I don't know. How's that healing crystal in your living room? Wait, 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 that wasn't fair. I got that at Target. <laughs> Have you buried it yet recently so it releases all its toxins? Oh, yeah, I just described Wicca. But you didn't know that, did you? Listen, half of you guys are like, I need to talk to him about the, the use of minerals and how they do this. Listen, whatever. All I'm saying is, listen, we keep inviting. We keep inviting this garbage into our lives. Do you guys know, I'm an instructor. I'm an art instructor. Do you guys know that Wiccan practices have exploded recently? It's commonplace. Witchcraft is not like, what? I mean, it's kind of like a cool thing. Oh, I'm a witch. It's a normal thing. You guys laugh. It's, it's normal. It's a normal thing. And it has definitely entered the church. And one of the main ways Wicca or other neo-pagan practices are explored is through the interest in body energy. Today, there is plenty of talk of energy, and yet this word is not being used scientifically nor are we addressing these topics biblically. Rather, we are all becoming mystics in our study. What's the solution? Guys, we got to remember that the body is corrupt. The body is corrupt. It is lost. We are waiting for a glorified body. At the moment of salvation, our spirit was awakened by the Spirit of God by using the Bible and daily prayer. We can avoid such divinist practices. So guys, how do we conclude? How do we, how do we conclude this time where tonight's been a warning? It is time that we, that we walk away from our co-mingling. It's time that we realize that God has called us to be consecrated in our walk to him. God's church is to be a called out assembly. It's about time we look like it. We are to be set apart according to the scriptures. It's also time we begin seeing the world for what it is, a fraud that only seeks to adulterate your faith. If we are truly going to have our own renaissance without the commingling, then it means we must refuse all attempts at integration and fully embrace the truth that is only found in the Word of God. Let's pray.
Father, I ask that tonight you would use this time in our lives. I pray that you would use this message both practically and even principally, that God, you would even tonight call us from a place of commingling to a place of consecration and separation. I pray, God, that, that people even this evening would, would make decisions that would, that would fall out to the furtherance of the gospel, that they would not be satisfied with a, a worldview that would position them on the fence any longer. Oh, God, please, would you do that in their lives tonight? Have them, God, please, have them speak with someone. Maybe they need to come forward as we even enter into praise uh, later on. God, would you please make this not just a moment where uh, we've heard the word of God, we've been challenged by the word of God, but God, help us to then make a decision now. Help us not just to contemplate, but help us to move. Lord, we love you. I ask that you would do all of these things because, God, you're faithful to your will. You're faithful to your plan. You're faithful to your word. And it's in your son's holy name. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.com.